The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Let us continue and hopefully finalize tonight the discourse of Buddha in Sarnath, by which traditionally it's called setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. Buddha has spoken for quite a while about the false perception of the self, of an individual self. As we have seen from the standpoint of yoga, not really denying the existence of an infinite, eternal, spiritual essence of the human being, but only deferring in terms of words revolting against the casual use of the word atma or self and thus deprecating it to a psychomental, to an emotional and physiological even level. <clears throat> and then Buddha has spoken a lot about the truth. We had a beautiful preaching a, a beautiful sermon about the truth and now Buddha continues with his final ideas. He says, a man who stands alone having decided to obey the truth, so he decided, he defined the truth and now obeying the truth is like the equivalent for him of the spiritual practice. You are a spiritual <coughs> seeker. The same principle has been used by other Far Eastern thinkers, unlike in India or in the Western spirituality, where other values have been put first, like people would say, searching for the love of God or something. If centuries later, George Oshava, the father of macrobiotics, when he wrote about the conditions of physical, emotional and mental health for a human being, he has given the highest value. He made a sort of a seven conditions which were having all in all a hundred points. They were summing up a hundred points. And the one which had 55 points out of a hundred, that means more than the other six put together, it, he called it justice. Justice, like again, this is showing this predominance of Manipura Ajna in the spirituality of these people, it's not a sort of Anahata Sahasrara or other combinations which we know from other spiritualities. That's why you always have to understand it uh, from the standpoint of the people who wrote this. So Buddha goes with his preference for illustrating the Supreme as the truth. And he says a man who stands alone having decided to obey the truth, that means deciding to follow the path of spirituality, may be weak and slip back into his old ways. This is such a short statement for the tragedy 
which befalls so many people in spiritual practice, that it's not enough to come and start spiritual practice. At some point, people may relapse, and they can try again, and they can relapse. And there is even a tantric text which is describing this situation, the Kularnava Tantra, but it is describing it in a funny way, in a tantric provocative way, with double entendre, because it means that you have to never give up, but at the same time it mixes it with the idea of consumption of alcohol, which some tantrics actually did um, in some branches of the left-hand tantra. <clears throat> Kularnava Tantra says, Drinking and drinking and falling to the ground and standing up and drinking some more and falling and standing up again, this is how one reaches enlightenment. And it's either like you drink until you get dead drunk and you start crawling on the floor, <clears throat> and at the same time it expresses the drama, the tragedy of the human soul that in spite of our best intentions, there are so many people who come to yoga, they hear the lecture about what is yoga, they hear the lecture about Ishvara Pranidhana or some other heart-touching lecture in our courses, even at the first level when people are so much beginners and they don't know a lot of things, and then their heart is moved, <clears throat> and then they want to commit themselves to serious spiritual practice. And then... Just a time later, when you count the sheep, when you count the final result, when you do the final count, then you find out that many have fallen off that path. Many people who have very tears in their eyes and a great, uh, you know, aspiration in the beginning, then five years later, they are not in spirituality or sometimes not even five years are required. Why? Because the fact that we have a moment or a few moments of awakening has to be put on the other plate, has to be weighed against the fact that we have samskaras, we have karma, we have tendencies from previous lives and from this life, and that's why people relapse. It's not possible usually that by a simple outburst of aspiration, one can burn all the negative conditionings from before. Yes, we have seen people who have been, for example, intense meat eaters, and then one day they felt compassion and morality about not killing animals uselessly, and then they became vegetarian in a second without regret and without relapsing for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> we have seen other and other famous situations where people have gone through a moment of crossroads, through a moment of intense outburst of aspiration, and then their life changed there from 100% without any relapse. Like Paul becoming from persecutor of Christians, becoming Christian apostle of Christ, as he had his epiphany on the road to Damascus. He never relapsed. There are cases, 
Saint Mary of Egypt, she went in front of the cross of Jesus, freshly discovered by Helena, by the mother of Emperor Constantine, and when she prostrated to the cross, she felt all her sins, and then she ran in the desert, and after she had been a sexual libertine, a fornicator, whatever you'd like to call her species, and her previous in her behavior, then she became one of the most ascetic women of history, spending having spent 30 or 40 years naked in the scorching sun of the Palestinian desert, and like going completely into <coughs> her uh, repentance or her feeling of connection to God in a very ascetic way, not necessarily on the tantric path. That's why Buddha here demonstrates real knowledge of the human soul, even when he says it in such a dry way. He says, even people who decide to obey the truth may be weak and slip back into his old ways. The fact that you have people that try to go into some divine place, and then ten years later, if you ask them, they say, oh, well, yeah, well, no, it was not something for me. It was that, with all due respect, is quite a bit of bullshit. And Buddha says it very clearly. People are slipping back into their old ways, not due to some epiphany or due to some wisdom or due to some understanding. People are slipping back due to weakness. It's simply a weakness that you cannot maintain that momentum. In yoga we see that as people maintain the momentum and as they get more and more purified, the tendency to relapse, the tendency to fall back, to slip back into the old ways, decreases. I always get more and more confidence in the pupils as they get season after season because I know that every season when they show once more, when they show up once more, means that they have gone over some more tests and there is a smaller chance of them slipping back. It's like climbing a ladder, a staircase. Every time it's like you went on the next stair, on the next step of that staircase. It's always, always. Does it mean that advanced people cannot fall? They can fall and they can fall pretty badly, according to a, a hermetic dictum, which says when people fall from higher, they fall worse. So, of course, it doesn't mean nobody is exempt of the risk of it, but the risk diminishes as the time is passing. So, Buddha is perfectly aware that people will relapse. Not everybody that starts a spiritual path will finish it. If we have a hundred pupils in the first level, it doesn't mean that we have a hundred pupils in the 37th level or in the advanced teaching or so. That's simply the law, that's simply the pyramidal structure of reality that, as Jesus has put it, many are called but few are chosen. The chosen thing means that you have passed your tests, you have gone through your tests, you have resisted a lot of pressure and a lot of tendencies of slipping back into the old ways. And Buddha knows it, 
And for example, here you would say, well, a Christian saint, maybe one of the apostles of Christ, would have said, you will have the tendency to slip back into the old man, not in the new man that Christ made you be, and therefore pray ceaselessly. Like he would have found the solution, prayer. Buddha does not give a solution, prayer, because it's not part of his system. Buddha gives something very down to earth. Never forget that according to most Buddhist calendars, Buddha, the birthday of Buddha is celebrated right now coming up in May. And actually according to most, like in the next full moon coming up is the birthday of the Buddha. And it almost always, 90% of the time, it falls in the astrological sign of the Taurus. So it is very, very possible that Buddha was a Taurus astrologically and that is why many of his things are showing both this mental and at the same time very down to earth tendency on the contrary you don't see there such a huge development of Anahata chakra because that was not his basic typology and he says you may slip back into the old ways and then what to do Therefore, he says, stand together, assist one another, and strengthen one another's efforts. It is funny that Buddha, who has reached enlightenment by fighting like a lone wolf, like he has run away from home, he has stayed a while with the Samans, he didn't like their ways and he didn't think the ways of the Samans, the yoga of the Samans, could reach enlightenment. And then he took the lone wolf path. And Buddha, who did the lone wolf path, actually advocates collective practice, group practice. He says, stand together, assist one another, and strengthen one, another, one another's efforts. In Christian mysticism, Christian mystics, many of them who loved loneliness, going in the desert, like I just said, St. Mary of Egypt, going in the desert and living alone for the next 30, 40 years. Nevertheless, when you read the advices of all the great saints about how to organize one's spiritual life, this is what great Christian saints advocate. They say, go together with two or three others, and steep yourselves into spiritual practice. They don't say go with one another, because two people is not safe. One person is not safe, because one person, instead of doing prayer, will start masturbating in their cell, and having endless sexual phantasms, and scratching their bum all day long, and not doing prayer, not doing practice. And one person can imagine that they are Napoleon or something and then they can go crazy because of the loneliness. So not everybody can take that. Very seldom are the people that can go there and keep sanity. If you go by two, there is still a risk because two people can make compromises. Two people can be comrades and then they can become like gang brothers. We kill somebody, but we are part of the same gang. It's Alibaba and his gang of thieves. No, it's like we do shitty things, 
but because we are brothers, we can kind of justify each other. <clears throat> One of the most uh, important transgressions which they expected in Christianity was, of course, sex. Like, even if two men go and create a small sketty, a small retreat, they may end buggering each other and hiding it from the rest of the world, and then it's still, it's still slippery. So the Christian mystics say, you, that you are one, go with two or three. So they mean communities, spiritual communities of three people or four people. Why don't they say then go with ten? The group will be, because whenever you have ten, you have a monastery. When you have a monastery, you have administration. You have financial manager, you have a kitchen, you have all sorts of things which are going to waste your time on nonsense. Therefore, they found ideal a small group, three or four. This can serve for you as inspiration and especially those of you that have a big Svadhisthana and are the typology called in the study of the Enneagram by Gurdjieff and especially by Oscar Ichazo, called the number four or the romantic, the artist. There are a number of people who always feel that they are really, really special and nobody understands them and that they are so brilliant and so genius, and everybody is so, uh, I don't know, muddled up or messed up, that people don't understand them, that they are like misunderstood gods walking the surface of the earth, that they are the reincarnation of some great queen or king or saint or mystic, that they are having something really special, and these people are just having a pathetic ego on Svadhisthana. It's not even an ego on Manipura. At least if they were on Manipura, they would become like the shogun of Japan. They become just like crazy. They become Napoleons, fake Napoleons, that should be committed into a mental institution. And therefore, um, that's why I'm saying uh, practicing alone, there are people who always think that they are superior and special in some way. Buddha, as well as the Christian mystics and the ashramites of India, they say there may be stages where you go into a retreat. There may be stages where you go in isolation, but not everybody is cut for that one. You have to be really strong not to lose your mind. There are many, many people who went to live alone, including uh, as you see in Hollywood movies, Vietnam War veterans who just run in Colorado forests and mountains and then they go, and they are nuts. They talk to themselves. They are a bit zang, they are a bit bazako because of traumas and because of other things. It's the same in spirituality. Sometimes you see people who try to cultivate this loneliness and unfortunately everything they got to get is actually weirdness. They simply became weirdos, not spiritual, really. There is a danger in this. Both Buddha and Jesus, they say practice in groups, stand together, assist one another, and strengthen one another's efforts. This does not preclude or exclude the necessity for individual practice. 
You can meet with your brethren at breakfast. You can listen to an inspiring sermon. And then you can go to your room and do a lot of practice, having got aspiration and having been sustained by the spirit of the others. There is very, very little probability that two people will be subjected to the same spiritual test at the same time. And that's why not everybody falls at the same time. Not everybody has the same weakness at the same time. And that's why when you are weak, your brothers and sisters are shoulder to shoulder with you and they can sustain you. That's why remember that there is a power in Svadhisthana and that power used in a negative way, it becomes conformism and it becomes Svadhisthanistic herd mentality. But you can use, you can turn the tables on it and up till a point you can use the herd mentality for spirituality. There are many people who tell me, when I go home to my country, after a while I lose my momentum and I don't practice. And when I come here and I see how many people with great aspiration there are, and how much some of them practice, it's like it electrifies me, and I'm ashamed of myself of how loose I have been, and then I start practicing. Ultimately, this is peer pressure. This is a Svadhisthanistic factor, but it is... It shows you that Vadistana also can be very good if you use it right. You can imagine stupid things and deplete yourself. You can visualize and imagine amazing things and empower yourself. You can use the crowd energy to just dissipate your attention, to distract your practice. And you can use the crowd energy to enforce. You are coming to a satsang. Many of you have noticed. You come to a satsang, there is a collective energy. You come to a Q&A, you go home and next morning you practice more. There is more aspiration, there is more inspiration, and there is something about this group energy. That's why Buddha was right, and Buddha instituted as a pillar of his revelation, Sangha, the community, the Buddhist truth, is made of Buddha himself, which is a symbol of reaching the transcendent consciousness, nirvana, dharma, which is the morality and ethics and the spiritual method which allows you to get to nirvana, and sangha, which are your brothers and sisters that are helping you to keep up the good work, that are keeping you from slipping back into the old ways. That's why the solution of Buddha is inspiring and it justifies the existence of Buddhist monasteries, Indian ashrams, Christian monasteries and other and other Sufi dargas and other and other groups, the spiritual groups, the esoteric groups of Gurdjieff and many, many other things. <clears throat> Therefore, here you have a beautiful illustration of the genius of the Buddha, like use the power of the group for once, for something positive as well. And he continues, Be like brothers, one in love, one in holiness, and one in your zeal for the truth. He doesn't call it aspiration. He calls it zeal for the truth. And that simply says, 
help each other. You see your brother or sister falling off the path, try to see if there is a way to salvation. Don't be disappointed if your karma yoga doesn't always end in success because the important thing for you is not to succeed. The important thing for you is to do the right thing. Karma yoga says when you are detached, Krishna's advice is sovereign. He says, equal in victory or defeat. Oh, Arjuna, stand up and do what is right. Stand up and do the righteous action. It's the same. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you try to support each other and some still are falling off the path. There is karma. There is lack of grace. There are some terrible samskaras and vasanas sometimes. There are many, many odd factors in someone's spiritual evolution. That's why you cannot decide and control all of them unless you really can. If you really have that spiritual level, then maybe you can push. But remember, even great, great teachers like Jesus himself and Buddha and Milarepa and Ramakrishna, they did not manage to change everybody. They had their percentage of relapses. They had their percentage of failures, simply showing that this is how the nature of reality is. Thus, Buddha, again, he advises spiritual brotherhood. He said, be like brothers, one in love, one in holiness, and one in your zeal for the truth. The word used for love is not exactly the emotional bhakti yoga type of love that we know from um, Indian mysticism or from Sufi devotional culture. It is more the love which Buddha defines as kindness, as loving kindness that amounts, that reaches its acme in compassion itself. And still, he says, be one in this. Meditate on what would it be to have a group of two, three friends or ten, twenty, and then in that environment to be one in loving kindness. No, like when you look around, you see that not everybody is one in loving kindness. In India, the people following the path of the same guru, of the same teacher, they call themselves guru bhai, like brother gurus, guru brothers. Like it's exactly like you would have the same father or mother, only that this is not a blood thing, it's a spiritual thing. Like the apostles of Christ, they were guru brothers. This brotherhood is very, very important. This is the new family. This is what Jesus said when he said, what is born out of flesh is flesh, and what is born out of spirit is spirit. There exists a brotherhood of the blood and flesh, and then there exists a brotherhood and a sisterhood of the spirit, and that is what Buddha is talking about here. The brothers in spirit will not do terrible things. The biological brothers can become gang brothers, murder brothers, immorality brothers, inequity and unethical brothers. 
the brothers about which Buddha is talking about are spiritual brothers that are holding the ground. If one is weak, the others can catch him by the shoulders and sustain him or her until the astrological moment of test is gone, can last for months and sometimes even years. And then when that moment of weakness is gone, you may find out with surprise that the one who was weak last month is now the one who is sustaining the ones that were strong yesterday and sustained. Saint Peter of Damascus, in his lecture about love, this time from a Christian standpoint, he expresses it wonderfully. He says, just like the moon is every month waxing and waning, and just like the sun is rising and setting, so the human being in every single virtue has its tide, tide and ebb, has its maximum and minimums, because the forces of nature are something which Tantric Yoga calls Svara. Svara means the breath of God, the breath of Shiva, and this Svara is like a pendulum. It's inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, yin and yang, and yin and yang. And all the time, everything in this world changes. A great Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, has sent it in the famous Greek syntagm, pantarei, which means everything flows, everything changes. There is nothing, everything changes. A person that is today full of aspiration, Ten years from now will be in the dark night of the soul and will be about to do something really stupid. The, the human soul is like a river that flows and sometimes grace and the fact that you just have 51% on the winning side keeps you. You are hanging with your nails to the edge of it and somehow miraculously you pass that test. You are about to do something really dumb against yourself and somehow miraculously like you didn't do it. But Buddha simply says you can replace part of that with this brotherhood because others can take some of it. Like if I have a brother who is losing his aspiration and I'm full on, it's a bit of a nuisance for me to take care of my weak brother because I wish to go and do my practice. I wish to go and do my things. And I'm shining. I am the lone wolf. But I am in a very successful mode right now. And therefore I feel my weak brother or sister. Like a lodestone to my neck. Like why would I waste. Why would I slow myself down. Taking care of somebody else. When I caught the wave. I caught this train. I am full on. Now the momentum is with me. But Pantare, the momentum will not always be with me. If you think that, you are wrong. That's why in Christianity, they never proclaimed, by, from this experience, they never ever proclaimed anybody a saint during their lifetimes. Nobody is a saint in their lifetime. And usually the Christian church cautiously asks to be at least 50 years, 100 years before a canonization process will start so that all the hidden truths will bubble up to the surface 
and everything should be known transparently. Today, the Catholic Church is so desperate that prayer saints, mystical saints, do not appear so much that they start making saints one, two years after they passed away. They still cannot go and make them saints during the lifetime. But they do it really, really too soon afterwards. In this way, risking disappointment, like they had some major disappointment with the very person of Mother Teresa, who was a charitable person, but who had doubts about the existence of God himself. As it appeared in some secret letters, which she had written to somebody, and which were published after she was canonized, and then the Catholic Church could say only, oops. No, like if they would have waited 50 years or 100 years, then they would have had the complete data in their hands. That's an act of desperation because the machine, the institution, is not working properly. It's dying slowly, slowly. And that is why, uh, remember, nobody can be proclaimed a saint during their lifetime. It's true that in India and in the Orient, Sometimes it is done with the great Roshis from Zen, with the Gurus from India, with uh, some of the Arhat, some of the great uh, souls from Buddhism, but sometimes it brings disappointment. As the title of an article published 25 years ago in the Yoga Journal was illustrating it so beautifully. It was the American pragmatic spirit brought to the inflow of yoga into the West and in North America. It was a beautiful article called Gurus that Tumble Off the Pedestal. Because that's what's happening when you consider people holy before 30 years have passed after their death. Like, observe, people are alive. Pantare, people can change like this. You assume that Swami Shivananda would not slip back into his ways. And it was just very lucky that he actually didn't. That was great. It was lucky. Perhaps it was to be expected. We are happy that Ramakrishna did not relapse. We are happy that Yogananda and Mahananda Mai did not relapse. But in the Orient, this precaution is not taken so much because they say the wisdom has to be judged here and now. But if you are looking for this Vadistanistic way of looking for a reputation, for a pedestal to build upon, then remember that uh, people relapse sometimes. Of course, the ones that get higher, they relapse much more seldom, but much worse. Because it's not the same thing to fall from the first floor of the building, like the upper floor, I think, European way. First floor for me is the one above the ground floor. And it's a totally different thing to fall from the tenth floor. The results will be completely different. That's why um, the relapsing exists and Buddha says, be like brothers, sustain each other with kindness and compassion, one in holiness. I long time ago heard about young monks in the Buddhist Theravada tradition. Until they are declared pure, 
monks, real monks, which takes, if I remember correctly, five years. I might be wrong and it might take just three, but until that date is coming, they are probationally monks, like the novices in Christian monasteries, and they are chaperoned 24-7. Like they don't go even to the toilet alone because they might practice masturbation and thus they might ruin their spiritual practice. They are chaperoned because Buddha has told them, be one in holiness. Like if your brother or sister is weak, stand by them, help them to be strong, help them not to, not to fall, not to relapse. And one in your zeal for the truth, one in your aspiration. This oneness is beautiful and it's the ideal of Buddha about Sangha, about the Buddhist community. That's how Buddha saw that his teaching should be practiced, should be continued, should be understood. Spread the truth, he continues, and preach the doctrine in all quarters of the world. So it's not Jesus who started with this, that Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations of the world, he, Jesus was late with this. It is actually Buddha that started it. And Buddha simply said, spread the truth and preach the doctrine in all the quarters of the world. Of course, you can see that Buddha, first of all, has no doubts that he is holding the truth. Because somebody would say, Buddha, what if you are wrong and the truth is not everyone's truth? What if it is true in India and Nepal where you live? but it's not true in England or in Africa. Like, are you so sure that your truth is so valid that it's worth spreading? Isn't that a bit of a megalomanic thing that now you think that you are the man, you think that you discovered the things, and you know, isn't that a bit grandomanic in some way? And Buddha doesn't seem to have that qualm. At the same time, not having uh, any contodent or ugly ego. He says, spread the truth, the truth which I have taught. Jesus have taught, have, will teach this in another way. Let him mind his own business about how he spreads the truth in his own way. He simply minds his own. He said, spread the truth and preach the doctrine in all quarters of the world, which denotes a pretty aggressive attitude to spirituality. Like at the time of the Buddha, we were in the big picture, we were already in Kali Yuga. And in Kali Yuga, Buddha says, spread the truth, preach it in the four corners of the world. That's why in Agama, we support people in becoming teachers of yoga. As Jesus said also in the same trend with Buddha, Jesus said, the field is great and there is a, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not able to say it word by word because I read this sentence long, long time ago, but he says something like, the field is great and there is great need for workers. Pray to God that he will send workers, which means we need approximately 12 enlightened beings to continue my mission. But if God doesn't want you to get enlightened, you are 
I cannot do it. You will not get there. And therefore, he says, pray that you shall be enlightened and thus you shall become apostles. Because if there will be apostles, then there will be a lot of tiling of the fields. Jesus compares it with a field. It's like it's harvest day. It's harvest day and there is nobody to harvest the wheat. Then the wheat will go bust. It's harvest day. There are 7 billion people out there that have an immortal soul. Who will give the truth to them in Kali Yuga? Because Discovery Channel and CNN do not. And therefore, I say like Jesus, there is a great need for workers because people have thrown to the dustbin the priests, the religions, many, many things. And now we live in a vacuum. 500 years ago, the world was in the sphere of different religions. The Muslims were doing their things. The Hebrews were doing their thing. The Christians were doing their thing. The Buddhists were doing their thing. The Hindus with their various denominations, they were doing their thing. Today you go in India, probably 90% of the young Indians are atheistic and they want to be computer programmers and to make a lot of money. You go to Europe, nobody wants to be Christian, everybody wants to sign off and not pay 0.043% of their tax income or or something to the church uh, and so on and so forth, like people are in a vacuum. And because of this vacuum of spirituality has come, unfortunately, the human heart, the human right brain hemisphere, the the human intuition, and especially the religious intuition, the spiritual intuition in that category, is depleted. And then people are falling into ridiculous demonic things. People are smoking marijuana, which destroys your critical factor and makes you believe in all the bullshit in this world. Ever since the hippie time, people started believing in incredible nonsense. Nonsense like things which you said in the 70s and 80s, and people went for it. In the 1940s or 50s, anybody would have crashed and spat on it. But when you smoke marijuana for 10, 20 years, and then you have kids while you are smoking marijuana and they are born with it in their DNA, then people can believe in the most bizarre nonsense that you cut your balls and the aliens will take your soul and save it on a comet. No, like How can people believe in crap like this? No, And therefore, why is this? Because people don't believe in Jesus. Because people need to believe in something. But funnily enough, they flushed down the toilet Buddha and Jesus and Krishna and they believe in, uh, I don't know what, in the little green men from Mars. They believe in the spirits from the Pleiades, which are going, they are operative Thetans, like in Scientology. They believe that we are robots created from a civilization from Orion. Isn't it much more healthy to believe in the fact that the divine consciousness manifested on the face of this earth and gave you salvation if you just stretch your hand to take it? Isn't that way more infinite 
way more transcendent, way more blissful. Like even if you want to choose your beliefs, if I had to choose between the belief of the Scientologists and the belief of the first Christian saints, I would always choose the belief of the first Christian saints. Always. Because it's a belief which is empowering. And thus, we live in a great vacuum. This vacuum was to a certain extent even encouraged by the demonic forces and people flushed down the toilet religions and everything even when the gurus came to Europe and to America in the 1960s and 70s, it didn't last for long. Like people went for Shivananda, for Shivananda Yoga and so on. People went for Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and for Transcendental Meditation. People went for Baba Muktananda and his teaching. People went for different one of these ones. Where are they now? Do you hear about them? What's happening out there? Even when you say the word yoga, you seldom hear the word name of Shivananda mentioned, the name of Yogananda, the name of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. You hear the name of all sorts of dudes who are just dudes. That's all they were. When you say Mr. Smith Yoga, this is Smith Yoga and this is Johnson's Yoga. Smith and Johnson and whatever their names truly are, are just dudes in yoga compared to Shivananda and Yogananda. That's why even in yoga, we're witnessing a vacuum of spirituality. The models are missing. People are not there. And then, people still have a need to believe. And that's why people can believe in everything. How did they fool them in America? I don't know, eight years ago or whenever it was, five, six, seven years ago, they fooled them that Obama, because he's black, is going to be more democratic and he's going to solve everything. Bullshit, because Obama belongs to the bankers from the Wall Street. They are running the show. The American president doesn't even have the highest security clearing in the American government. There are documents which Obama may ask and the CIA can tell him, fuck off, you are not having the clearance to see. He's the president, but it doesn't mean he means much from that standpoint. It's just a public image. to just It's just sand in the eyes, smokescreen. And that's why I'm saying we live in a world where people are ready to believe in any kind of pseudo-savior because the real ones have been flushed down the dustbin and people don't see them anymore. That's why Buddha is aggressive about it. He says it's a need for the good people to go out there and tell the truth which they have learned. It's like that famous dictum which says for the, for the evil to triumph, it is just enough for the good people to do nothing, to stand and do nothing. And that's why this is Kali Yuga. Perhaps in Satya Yuga it was not so. But in Kali Yuga, the rules of engagement are changed and Buddha agrees with this missionarism. He says, spread the truth and preach the doctrine in all the quarters of the world. The Tibetans have called it the lion roar, the lion's roar. Get up on the roof, shout it from the rooftops. No, like there is a spirituality and because there are so few spiritual people left in spirituality, and 90% of it is marijuana nonsense, then 
spirituality needs to be preached. Maybe not aggressively, maybe with wisdom, maybe with a sense of decency, maybe with common sense, but still, it, the truth needs to be said. Remember, Jesus himself was praying, may God send workers for the field, like the Jewish kingdom was screwed up as the events showed at that time. The Greek part of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, was screwed up morally and ethically so badly. They were in terrible confusion. The Western Roman Empire was screwed up so badly, all the emperors from Caesar to the last Roman emperor, I even forgot his name, at the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the year 300 and something, all the Roman emperors from Caesar until the last one, with one exception, that was Marcus Aurelius, all of them suffered at least from epilepsy. But most of them were borderline schizophrenics, paranoid schizophrenic, like severe mental patients. The Roman Empire was a mess. And in that mess they are living hundred million nice people with a heart. That's why Jesus said, May God send workers because the field is big. And there were lots of workers that converted all those parts of the world, converted them to a new religion in which at that time there was humility, there was no bloodshed, there were no there was no arrogance. But on the contrary, the love and humility was there. So Buddha is perfectly aligned with this. Don't take it like an arrogant form of showing off. It is simply his feeling and his belief that the world is in dire need, at least of somebody telling the truth. It's like, I think David Icke is is quoting some of these conspiracy people who say in times of injustice and falsity, one of the supreme acts of revolution is just to tell the truth, at least spread the truth. He means about conspiracy and things like that. But in terms of spirituality, says Buddha here. So that so spread the truth and preach the doctrine in all quarters of the world, so that in the end all living creatures will be citizens of the kingdom of righteousness. He doesn't say the kingdom of God. He doesn't say the kingdom of love. He uses the word righteousness. Remember his angle is more through Manipura and Ajna. And for him God is illustrated as righteousness. You find a little bit in the ancient Jewish way of thinking from Moses and some of the prophets that preached righteousness. Because they were not going so much in Anahata. They needed to be disciplinarian. They needed to go into this discipline mode with rules and regulations because otherwise people would not listen. When Jesus came, one of the objections brought to him by the Jewish priests of the time was that if you just love everybody and forgive everybody, then how can you have social order and how can you judge, how can you pass judgment and so on. And Jesus told them that his opinion was, thou shall not judge. They could not agree with it because they were coming from a Manipuristic world where there was a lot of rules and regulations and a lot of judgment was passed. Here, 
Buddha expresses his own messianic view. Buddha thinks that one day, in the end, whatever that end is, practically never coming, it's like chasing the rainbow, in the end, all living creatures will be citizens of the kingdom of righteousness. As Jesus said, there will come a day when the lamb will lie together with the lion and there will be no more killing. Therefore, Buddha is going a lot for this idea of spread the truth. And he concludes by saying, lead a holy life for the extinction of suffering. And he doesn't mention if it's your own suffering. It always starts with you leading a spiritual life. I would call it spiritual. He calls it here holy. And in the context of religion, of course, either Christian or Buddhist or whichever, we can use the word holy. Holiness is a word in religion to define righteousness and the life well lived in accordance with the spiritual principles. I, being the teacher of a yoga school, I prefer to call it a spiritual life because it's a life in spirit. A life in spirit is for the people outside a sort of a holy life. Some people even envy or at least grudge, begrudge to the yogis the fact that the yogis are vegetarian. You know, and they say, yeah, you are trying to play that you are so holy. They ignore the fact that some people might not eat meat for other reasons, such as occult reasons. I don't want to get animal energy in my aura for the time being, or that some people do not wish to eat meat simply for hygienical purposes, having to do with diet and so on. But you are always getting like you are so holy. right? So Buddha uses the word holy, lead a holy life for the extinction of suffering. Ultimately, that's the angle of Buddha. I sometimes feel it a bit sad because it's not a tantric angle to the spirituality. Like Buddha is not going for the carrot, but he is running from the whip. He always puts for people behind them the whip of this. The very first of his four noble truths is that the essence of existence is suffering. There is suffering. No, like, do not try to pretend there is no suffering. Look around like Buddha did and see plenty of suffering. And that's why for him the purpose, that's why he ran away from home and he did meditation and eventually he reached nirvana because he wanted to find a solution to suffering, a way out of suffering he wanted to find a solution for the extinction of suffering. Of course, you realize that what Buddha has preached, exactly like the truths of Jesus, they are functioning inside, inwards, internally, for the people who practice those things. Because even in the Christian world, even when the Christians took over the Roman Empire and Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, there was still lots of suffering. There was still lots of plague and epidemics and domestic violence and street violence and wars. And like even Jesus and people worshipping Jesus openly 
and majoritarily, still it didn't stop the suffering in the world. It can be argued that maybe it diminished it to a certain percentage, which alas cannot be measured properly, retroactively, and we can speculate that yes, maybe if in Constantinopolis, today's Istanbul, people were believing so much in Jesus, maybe actually the suffering was 50% less. It's speculation. How would we measure that for something which happened 15 centuries ago? That's why both Buddha and Jesus and others, they go for the extinction of suffering, but that extinction of suffering is something internal, especially like you can extinguish your own suffering by surrender, by integration into the divine consciousness, by spiritual realization. And then if you, if there is one less suffering person in this world, then you can bring some diminished suffering perhaps to your immediate neighborhood, to your surrounding environment. But otherwise, um, you should not have unrealistic views. Look at what has been accomplished in history and realize that everything is possible, but not everything flies because sometimes the world has to follow its pathways. It's required for evolution. And I would like to give you a few examples of one of the as ending of this series of lectures. Maximum one follows and then we'll finish with the wisdom of Buddha and we are going to look into traditional yogic texts of the yoga tradition. That is my intention for the satsangs later in the month of May. But I still would like to outline one of the concepts, one of the treasures, which seems to me most valuable in the spirituality of Buddha and some of the sayings of Buddha about it, collected from different places of his discourses. And I'm talking, of course, about compassion. Many spiritualists have said that compassion is the supreme human emotion. Of course, it um, competes with the Christian and perhaps Sufi way of looking at it, that love is the supreme emotion. But the beautiful idea is that love taken to the cosmic, unconditional love, universal love level, where it becomes truly the love of God, it actually has common features with compassion which in the case of Buddha did not start so much from a bhakti bhakti yoga type of anahata and it amounts to ajna chakra that is why indeed I will say that if you have some emotion like many of you can ask yourselves when did you feel a dissolving and overwhelming compassion and pay attention, compassion is a very rare emotion because there is the mercy from Svadhisthana. Like you see a little dog hit by a car bleeding on the side of the road. And your heart is pouring out and you feel like you can cry a river of tears for that little dog suffering. That is actually a reaction towards the animal nature and in yoga it's classified in Svadhisthana. 
people that try to save the whales and all that, all these hippie movements of Greenpeace and others, they actually act based on a Svadistanistic feeling, a beautiful feeling. Don't feel I insult it because I say it's on Svadistana. It's one of the harmonious, nice parts of the Svadistana. That's a healthy Svadistana, a good Svadistana, that we feel for the trees, that we feel for the cows that are being slaughtered, that we feel for the ozone layer and the mother nature and mother earth and so on. It's still coming from Svadistana at that level, at the direct organic level. Then there is a higher level of it which goes in the heart and which is love itself, love with the unique characteristics described by Jesus and by many other mystics. When this love is sometimes seeking, it's more intelligent than this organic mercy. This organic mercy is like, no, 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 right now and this and that. But love is searching for the greater good. With love, a mother can lovingly even punish a child so that the child will learn a very important lesson. Love is not only about, no, 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 but I still cannot take to see it. That's the difference between if you would have two parents, one of them is Anahata and the other one of them is Vadistana, and one of them is trying to give a luminous lesson and the other per parent cannot stand to see it or to witness it because immediately they react. The second parent is weak and receptive on Svadistana and feels this mercy, this sort of pity, and the one in Anahata is a bit higher and has a bird's eye. He sees a much bigger chunk of how life really is and because of this, he can do things which are way more complex than just to hug a little dog or a tree or a dolphin or what, which again, that's not bad, but it has to be integrated in the bigger picture. Compassion is the next step even love itself is or can be upgraded through compassion. And if you think indeed compassion, 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 like when did you feel an overwhelming feeling of compassion? Indeed, compassion is very rare. When a human being has compassion, there appear colors, magnificent colors in their aura, like golden type of yellow, a golden type of yellow. Believe me, it's very, very seldom that you can see golden yellow in anybody's aura in this world. The bogus Tibetan Lama Lopsang Rampa, who was nevertheless a very great clairvoyant, only he was not Tibetan, he was Irish, and he had been a plumber when he was young. Lopsang Rampa, who created a bogus personality to be more impressive to his readers, Lopsang Rampa said a great truth. He said, because he indeed he was endowed with clairvoyance, but he could have simply said, I am a weird ex-plumber from Ireland who discovered that I can see auras and I am endowed with a great degree of clairvoyance. And uh, if you want to listen to me, you can listen to me. I have some interesting things to teach you from what I have seen. He didn't need to pretend he was the reincarnation of some Tibetan Lama, not even the reincarnation, a sort of pova, transference of consciousness from a Tibetan Lama. 
but what he said should not be flushed to the toilet, down the toilet, just because he actually botched it in creating a false public persona. Like, don't throw the baby with the water in the tub as well. And that is that Lopsang Rampa said, for most people, you never get to see golden yellow in their auras. What you see is mostly a mixture of red, orange, and green, which actually gives, they mix. And if you don't know what it gives, try to take a gram of red paint with a gram of orange paint and with a gram of green paint and mix them in a glass and see what color results. What results is a shitty shade of brown. So Lopsang Rampa correctly said, the aura of most people is predominantly of a shitty shade of brown, unfortunately. And colors like bright blue, golden yellow, shining purple, and these are, see, you see them only on the Tibetan tankas and on the yantras. These are archetypal colors, but in the human aura, if they would be present, if golden yellow would be present abundantly in someone's aura, that person would spontaneously experience great feelings, inexplicable feelings for them of compassion, of true compassion in the Buddhist understanding for it. And to understand it, I want to give you some reference quotes from the Buddha himself. Here is one of them. I look, says Buddha, I look for no recompense, not even to be reborn in heaven, but I seek the welfare of man to bring back those that have gone astray, to enlighten those that live in the night of error, to banish all pain and all suffering from the world. This is an expression of it, and believe me, it's one thing to think Svadhisthanistically about it, and it's one thing to do it. Tibetan lamas in the glory times of Tibetan yoga, they said that if you are strong enough and you feel that you have eliminated your shit, then you can start to deal with the shit of the world. How? You should make a pranayama with visualization of colors in which as you inhale, you should imagine that you inhale all the sins and the crime and the pain and the impurity and the perversity from this world and you should visualize that energy coming in your lungs as being of a dark gray color. And then you should rise this energy to the third eye and you should give it back and when you exhale under the form of a golden yellow stream like liquid sunshine which streams out of your third eye and floods the world with compassion, with loving kindness. Anybody who tries to practice such a technique without the empowerment given by the guru, the first thing which happens is that you fall very ill in maximum 48 hours. Very ill. Bringing that horrible energy in your aura it makes you break apart in no time. Not to mention that if somebody is emotionally disturbed, you can go completely gaga by doing this. Like it can reflect not only on your body, but it can reflect on your mind and emotions in terrible ways. 
So don't think that I taught you to do this because you are not prepared to do this ultimate pranayama, the vacuum cleaner pranayama, the pranayama for cleaning the world of its suffering. You cannot, because in the moment when you do it, you do it for one month, you'll get a cancer in your throat like Ramakrishna and you'll die agonizingly. If you are prepared for that and to die still in full faith and full shining, then go ahead. But otherwise, that's not possible for the beginner and that's an idea which has to come first of all from the thorough cultivation of compassion. Meditate a lot. What is compassion? It is beautiful what the Dalai Lama, the present Dalai Lama said, because he said, we cannot live well our lives unless we live it for the others. Like whoever is trying to live their lives for themselves is just a selfish person who doesn't understand the essence of existence. That's why compassion is a great idea but it cannot be built directly out of suffering and ignorance. Very seldom are the people who can have a moment of epiphany and then just click. And even if they click, they click for 48 hours and then they slip back in their old ways. They can't maintain the momentum. I look for no recompense, for no reward. Not even to be reborn in heaven. That's what so many other spiritual texts say. No, like even this idea that you are going to be reborn in some high paradise, it's nonsense. It's still a refined form of illusion. It's a refined form of egoism that you are just trying to make a very smart investment of your time and energy. But it's ultimately not for the world. It's for yourself. I look for no reward, not even to be reborn in heaven, but I seek the welfare of man to bring back those that have gone astray. Yes, people have gone astray. We live in a politically correct time where it's not correct to point fingers at people. But look at Jesus. Jesus pointed a lot of fingers to a lot of people and he has said, people, you have gone wrong. The devil is dancing on your back. You are astray. Wake up. Therefore, to bring back those that have gone astray, there are plenty of them, to enlighten those that live in the night of error. It is ignorance which is the supreme pain and error. And ignorance gives the night. It's the night of the spirit. It's simply not seeing, not understanding to banish all pain and all suffering from the world. You are going to say, well, he didn't succeed. Because he says to banish all pain and all suffering. But there has been pain and suffering. So Buddha flunked. No, that is an ideal. It is okay to long for the ideal. Buddha says, I seek to banish all the pain and suffering from the world. It doesn't matter if you succeed or not. Remember again. Equal in victory and defeat, O Arjuna, stand up and do what is right. For Buddha, that is right. To seek, to banish all pain and all suffering from the world. Buddha himself was, years later, when he was an enlightened master, 
he was having different problems. According to the Thai mythology, Buddha was constipated and the doctor of Buddha, he had a physician and the doctor gave him some oil, some herbal oil and Buddha crapped his guts out and he was free of his and that's a great victory in the Buddhist world. Like, yeah, even Buddha could suffer from constipation no? and see, it doesn't mean he himself was free from absolute. As long as he had some constipation, he probably had some pain in his bowels. So he was not absolutely free. But remember, this is a great goal. And he says a great thing which I'm going to start. It's one of his statements which for me is very important. He says, not for the sake of my own well-being, I practice universal benevolence. But I love benevolence, like loving kindness, goodwill, because it is my desire to contribute to the happiness of living beings. Really, I have been in the world of spirituality and I have seen sometimes spiritual teachers that they would guide their judgment in the choice of their disciples in accepting somebody or not according to this criterion. Like they looked at people and they told to people, you are benevolent, you are a good soul, you are a good person. You all know, I know it as well as all of you do, that there are people who simply are not benevolent. They may be okay, or sympathetic for a while, especially when they have something to gain. But then, just, you know, if, just if I look at what's happening with this yoga school in the years when it has been, they are not only benevolent people. There are people who have been in this yoga school for a year or so. When they were in the yoga school, their eyes were sparkling with enthusiasm. And then once it didn't serve their purpose because they lost their aspiration, they lost the momentum, they lost something which motivated them, then suddenly there was no benevolence. Suddenly their benevolence turned into bitterness. Suddenly their benevolence, if you would be benevolent, if you would be Buddha, I love this statement. He says, it's not for the sake of my own well-being, but I love benevolence. I myself, Vivekananda, I tell you, I love benevolence. And all those of you that are benevolent souls, I love you. Because you are benevolent. And those of you that have demons running through your mind and are ready to bite, are ready to bark and bite, you are not very benevolent. You don't love benevolence. There are spirits that are simply good. Even my teacher in chiropractic, who was an exorcist and a monk, an old monk and so on, he saw sometimes people and he spontaneously said, you are a good man, you are a man with good heart, I like you. No, like this is a man that is essentially good, that is not inclined in this life to, to harm anybody. We all suffer from things, either that we got stung by a scorpion or we got and I'm speaking about the animal, not the astrological sign, either that we got stung by a scorpion or that we 
uh, have a toothache or that we are constipated like Buddha or that somebody stepped on your toes in a subway or that somebody offended your reputation in public or somebody stole your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever another hundred things have happened to you, there are people who are benevolent and they would never do harm as a result of this pressure. They are under pressure, things are happening, but their heart is a goodwill type of heart. It's a loving heart. It's benevolent. Even the supreme text of spiritual practice in Christian Orthodox lore, written by, compiled by the Greeks in the old days, it is called the Philokalia. Today you can read it because it's been translated by great scholars about 10-15 years ago. And in the Philokalia, Philokalia, Kali, those of you who have been to Greek, Kalimera, Kalispera, Kali means good, well, and philo, like in philosophy, means the love of. Philokalia is, which is the essential book of prayer of Christian mystics in the East. Philokalia means love of goodness. To be in love with benevolence, with goodness, like you spontaneously love something which is good. You don't contemplate harming. You don't like it. You don't want it. You would run away from it as much as you can. A great, there is a famous story about Gigen Funaroski, one of the creators of modern karate in Japan, that one day the police, the Japanese police, is notified that a young hooligan-looking man is chasing an old man on the street. And the police, the Japanese police, apparently managed to be so efficient that they actually caught them in the act. And when they catch them in the act and they interrupt the chase, they find out that the young man was a very famous criminal who had a record with the police and he was famous for street violence and other things. But the old man was Gigen Funarodsky. It was the founder of karate, one of the martial arts senseis with many, many dons, with many, many degrees, at which the policemen, they bowed down very embarrassed to this old man who was a giant in martial arts of Japan. And they said, sir, if you allow us just a quick, like of all people in the world, why did you need to run from this hooligan? You know, Because if there was somebody that could teach him a lesson, that was definitely you. At which Funaroski showed him his hands, which were callous, they were bony here, because of the Makivara trainings and other things which he had done. So he showed them the hands and he said, it wouldn't have been honest with such a man. But he said, it wouldn't have been fair of me. Like the old man preferred to run away in Japan, a Manipura culture. Then the old man says, oh, I was not running. I was running not to beat him up too, ba- too badly. And everybody can say, yeah, yeah. You are just an 80-year-old man. You are dragging your farts. Your muscles are not what they used to be. Your reflexes are not what they used to be. You are actually a coward and you find metaphysical excuses. The old man preferred to endure that doubt and shame, which for losing face in Japan is so bad, rather than fighting. He was in love of benevolence. He was benevolent. He didn't want, he preferred to humiliate himself in public rather than... No, he didn't want to harm. Morihei Ueshiba, who was another one, 
he never wanted to fight anymore because once he threw a guy over his shoulder and broke his shoulder, he hit him on a pole and the guy broke his shoulder bone. And ever since that time, Morihei Ueshiba, he said, you can accuse me of being coward, I shall not fight because I'm too good. I'm too good and I'm going to beat the shit of everybody and I prefer for you to have doubts about my ability rather than harming people. This is the real Buddhist spirit of benevolence. No, like, and to love benevolence. I, for one, would like if one day we have a tantric, butt-naked kingdom or republic or whatever it is in some Pacific island, I would like that benevolence should be the admission criterion. Like, if you have no benevolence, leave our place. I would like to see a place of the earth where only benevolent people are, no malevolent people. Malevolent people can go and knock their heads with each other wherever they want. But those of us that love benevolence, that love kindness, that love goodwill, should be in a place of choice. I love very much this attitude of Buddha where he says, that not for the sake of my own well-being, but I love benevolence because it is my desire to contribute to the happiness of living beings. I, for one, this is one of the statements of Buddha which resonates deeply with me because I think, I feel that this is real spirituality. I feel that this is one of the keys to spirituality. I have been in monasteries, in ashrams, in so many spiritual places and there would always be some people who are not benevolent and who are spoiling the cocktail for everybody else, who are simply keeping things bitter for everybody else because like why can't a group of people share real compassion, real kindness, real love, real benevolence. This is one of the ideals of the Sangha, of the spiritual community, to be united in that. In our next satsang, which will be the last based on the discourses of the Buddha, at least for this season, I'm going to conclude with a few more meditations on compassion and on the higher knowledge on enlightenment as illustrated by Buddha himself. With this, we'll finish for tonight. Thank you all for joining the satsang of this week. Namaste. And with this, we are done. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.